Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be with you this Lord's Day and as we begin the new year together, diving headfirst into the deep end of the pool, we come into Ephesians chapter 1 to tackle what many consider to be the scariest word in the Bible. And no, I am not talking about tithing. We will maybe touch on that next week, but today I'm talking about predestination, talking about predestination. And as we enter into this, I want you to know that I'm fully aware that this doctrine scares and triggers and angers and even comforts people from all sorts of backgrounds for all kinds of reasons and with good reason. Predestination is terribly ugly and scary to many people, inside the faith and outside the faith. It's a terribly difficult concept for many people. But for those who are in Christ and trusting in the grace and mercy of God for salvation, they come to see that predestination is a beautiful and powerful mystery of God's grace, all for the praise of his glory. And so I hope and pray that you will be comforted in some ways, perhaps challenged in others, as we make our way through this brief sermon today. I came across a story this week about a man who believed deeply in the doctrine of predestination. He believed in it so deeply that he decided to run an experiment to test his theory of this doctrine on his own son. And here's what he did. He set out three objects on the dining room table in preparation for his son's arrival from school. He explained it all to his wife like this. The first object is a $100 bill that represents high finance. If our son takes this, he's destined to go into business. The second object was a Bible. And he explained, if our son takes the Bible, he's destined to become a man of the cloth. And the third item was a bottle of cheap whiskey. And he said, if our son takes this, he's destined to be a drunkard. So the wife and her husband hid and waited on their son to come in from school. And when he did, he walked to the dining room table and he saw the three objects on the table and he carefully examined each one of them. And then he looked around to make sure that no one could see him or that no one else was present. And he took the $100 bill and he stuffed it in his pocket. He picked up the Bible and put it under his arm. And he walked out of the room drinking the bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and the man looked at his wife and he was astonished. And he said, how about that? Our son's destined to become a lawyer. <laughs> Well, part of what makes predestination so weird and wacky to us is the way philosophers and theologians have sort of hijacked the conversation. They have disgusted and debated it to death using words like determinism and fatalism and compatibilism and libertarianism. And these words get tossed back and forth and all those isms make our heads spin and make our hearts numb. 
Well, like little children trying to follow an adult conversation between their mom and dad, we might catch a few bits and pieces of the conversation and string them together in such a way that we can form a story. But you know as well as I do that that story is mixed with a little bit of truth and a whole lot of error, and that eventually leads to confusion and controversy. As Ambrose Beers put it in his Devil's Dictionary, predestination is the doctrine that all things occur according to program, not to be confused with foreordination. The difference is great enough to have deluged Christendom with ink to say nothing of the gore. Yikes! People have spent countless hours and generations spilling ink in debate over this issue, gouging one another, criticizing one another, calling into question each other's faith, ripping each other to shreds over this doctrine. Now, there is a time and place for technical and high-level exploration of things like predestination, but I want to be very clear this morning that that is not the way the Apostle Paul talked about predestination. And all I want to do today is echo Paul to the best of my ability with the help of the Holy Spirit. You might have a thousand and one questions about predestination, and those questions may or may not have something to do with the apostolic teaching of predestination. They might simply be philosophical or theological curiosities. But what I want you to see here is the beauty, the simplicity, and the clarity of predestination as presented by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Keep in mind that when Paul wrote these words that we just heard in the scripture reading, he wrote these words to all the saints. And when he said to all the saints, he didn't mean all those who are saintly and have gone to heaven and have experienced the beatific vision. He was actually writing to ordinary baptized Christians just like you. He was writing to husbands and wives, to parents and children, to masters and slaves. He was writing to people who were engaged in spiritual warfare in the rough and tumble of life. He was writing to people who had experienced a variety of ups and downs just like you are, just like you have. He was writing to ordinary Christians who were all doing life together and they were on mission with God for the life of the world. He was writing to people whose lives had been turned upside down by the gospel and he wants to give them a word of comfort He wants to give them perspective on who they are in Christ. He wants to help them understand God's purpose for them in this world. Now, granted, even though Paul wrote these things to ordinary folks like us, the Apostle Peter warns us that some things that Paul said, some things Paul wrote about are difficult to understand. Peter goes on to say, the Apostle Peter said that what Paul wrote, some things are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
So on the surface, predestination is one of those things that, are, that is hard to understand. But just because something is hard to understand doesn't mean we get to ignore it. It doesn't mean we get to just explain it away or set it aside. Sometimes it means that we have to work a little bit harder at it, pray more, have more conversations, work together on trying to arrive at clarity. But I want you to remember that Jesus taught us something very important here. Jesus taught us that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And predestination is one of those words that comes from the mouth of God. It is presented to us here as a life-giving word. Now, in previous ministry, I was in a place, uh, I remember on several occasions, different people at different times saying to me, hey, I don't like the doctrine of predestination. I don't agree with predestination. I don't believe predestination is in the Bible or true. And they would do that sort of thing. Say, well, it's right here. We just read it. The Holy Spirit gave this word to us. So you might not like the way I've presented it, but we have to deal with it because it's in the, in the word of God. And so people would have to go back and explore this. Now, some people reject the doctrine of predestination because they believe it was invented by John Calvin. It was not invented by John Calvin. John Calvin commented on it, as did Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and countless other theologians and pastors throughout the ages. All of them were simply trying to make sense of what the Holy Spirit had said through the Apostle Paul and other prophets. Others reject it because they believe it makes people out to be something like pre-programmed robots. I myself as I wrestle with this doctrine many years ago, said to a man one time, I'm not a robot. You know, that was my argument against this doctrine. Some reject it because they believe God gave everyone free will to choose to be saved or not to be saved. And so they want to lean on the side of people have free will and God's will is not as free as their will and God has to respect that. And then others reject it because they think it makes God out to be some sort of a cold-hearted, calculating, or coercive puppet master. And you can see how all of these uh, are based upon caricatures that people have heard regarding this doctrine. In a nutshell, people reject or resist predestination because they don't like what they think it signifies about man or what they think it signifies about God. And I'm inclined to say that more times than not, they're not wrong about those concerns. They're not wrong because what they are rejecting are the caricatures and the stereotypes of predestination and not the real thing. And I think the reason we have the caricatures and the stereotypes is because we've made a mountain out of a molehill. We've made the doctrine far more difficult and complex than the Apostle Paul ever intended for us to do. If we were to say to him, this is one of those hard things that you've written that are difficult to understand, he might scratch his head and say, I thought I was very clear and so simple. And I'll show you what I mean by that in just a moment. But you know as well as I do that many people see predestination as a life-draining doctrine, not as a life-giving doctrine. 
And the reason for that is because they don't view it as something personal, relational, and familial the way the Apostle Paul did. They view it as something far more clinical, mechanical, and even fatalistic. But the mystery of predestination tells us something truly beautiful about God's grace and God's love for sinners. And that's what I want you to hear today. Ephesians was written to the church as a pastoral letter. Paul wrote this with the help of the Holy Spirit for the people of God. And he wanted the souls under his care to know by experience the glorious love and the lavish grace of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for sinners. He wanted them to feel the warmth of God's mercy and kindness in their life. Not to walk away thinking God is mean and cold-hearted. No, they want, he wanted them to know God's love for them. And so my hope and prayer is that this sermon, with the help of the Holy Spirit, will help clarify, simplify, and even beautify this doctrine for us in some small way. And why do I want this? I want it for your sake, so that grace may comfort you in your life and that you may be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, with that very long introduction, let's dive into this passage. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 opens in this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And throughout this whole chapter, Paul is emphasizing the familial relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons who purposed and planned to bless bad people and to save sinners before the foundation of the world was laid. Back in the early 1990s, I had a teacher who loved to remind us that God planned a plan before time began to save man. It's poetic. And it's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. What Paul says here is much better. It's much better because what Paul is saying is that God did more than just plan a plan to save man. He's saying that God planned to become man in order to purchase salvation for sinners and to fulfill his purposes for you and for me, for us. Listen to what he says. God the Father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now notice that this pastoral letter does not deal in abstract ideas, but in concrete realities. In other words, Paul doesn't write the letter and say, God chose some of us in Christ, if you were really and truly chosen, and God predestined some of us if, in fact, you were truly predestined. No, he writes to the church, and he is assuming the best about the people who are hearing and reading his letter. He's not trying to peer into the secret mind of God and delve into the mysteries of God's providence. No, he is simply dealing with what is right in front of him. 
And he's dealing with people who have been baptized into Christ and put their faith in Christ and they're struggling to walk with Christ and they don't have it all together and they're still kind of a mess and they're working out the kinks and life is often upside down for them. And he still says this beautiful thing about these people. God chose us. He identifies with them. God the Father predestined us. He identifies with them. We're in the same community. We're in the same boat. We're in the same love of God. Now, Tragically, some pastors take what should be a comforting truth of the gospel and they twist it into a disconcerting weapon that stirs up doubts and fears and anxieties among God's people instead of faith, hope, and love. If you've ever heard a sermon or any kind of teaching on the doctrines of election and predestination and you walked away sort of navel-gazing and scratching your head and your heart was uh, shaking because now you're not sure if God loves you. Now you're not sure if you're one of God's elect or if you have been predestined. Something went terribly wrong in the uh, presentation of that message or maybe in the reception of it. But something went terribly wrong. If we follow what the Spirit is leading Paul to do here, we see that this doctrine is so comforting to God's people because it tells us about God's ultimate purpose for us in Christ. Paul wanted the people who received his letter to know by experience the grace and the mercy and love of God for them. And we want the same for you. And so if you walk away today navel-gazing and not sure whether God loves you enough to predestine you to be a part of his family, something has gone wrong, and we need to talk. Because what you need to hear is that God loves you, and he loves you enough to establish a purpose for your life to bring you into his family by the work of Jesus Christ. And that's all of you, and that's what you all need to hear So Paul didn't try to figure out whether every single person who read and heard the letter was elect or predestined. That's what theologians like to try to figure out. They want to see if there's a secret mark on people so they can detect who's in and who's out. Well, that is not our purpose here today or any other day. Paul assumed they were elect and predestined by grace. And he assumed the best about them because they're in the same body of Christ that he is in. So think about what's going on with them. Their whole world has been upturned, turned upside down by the gospel. They're engaged in spiritual warfare. Things are very dicey in Ephesus. A lot of conflict, a lot of controversy. Perhaps some of them were wondering, wait, is this gospel of grace thing really all that good? Because life doesn't feel good right now. And Paul writes to remind them of this massive truth of the gospel. What does he mean when he says, the Father chose us in Jesus and the Father predestined us for adoption? What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. He means you are not an accident. You're not a mistake. You're not an afterthought. In fact, you have always been on God's mind and in God's heart. And God didn't just think about you in eternity. And when he thought about you, he didn't shake his head or roll his eyes or do a cosmic face palm. When he thought about you, he loved you. 
He loved you. He always loved you. And he took actions to show that he loves you. Actions that will bless you and save you in Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his love to bring you into his family and to make you his son and his daughter. Not to make you slaves and servants, but to make you one of his children. And Paul explains this a little bit more fully later on in the book of Ephesians 2 when he says, here's what the us and the we means. God chose us. God predestined us. Here's what that means. It's personal. It's relational. God has set the boundary of your life for you. He's established the horizon of your existence. He's determined allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place so that you should seek God and feel your way toward him and find him. He's not playing hide and seek with you. You've been playing hide and seek with him. This is what God spoke to sinners like us through the prophet Isaiah. Something we need to remember. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. God is not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our existence. And why is that? Because he wants to be found by you. And why does he want to be found by you? He wants to be found by you because he loves you. And he shows you he loves you by what Jesus has accomplished for you at the cross. Now think about who God predestined. I got ahead of myself a minute ago, but think about who God predestined. You and me. And I don't just mean you and me as we are right now today. We're so cleaned and polished, sanctified even. But think about you and me before Christ. Think about you and me before we were a twinkle in our mother's eyes. All sinners, no saints. Who did God predestine? Sinners. They're the only ones he chooses, the only ones he predestines, the only one that he wants to deal with. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, in explaining the us and the we of chapter 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There was no difference between us and them. We weren't better nor worse than anyone else. And yet Paul could say, 
the Father chose us in Christ, and the Father predestined us for adoption. Think about what he's saying there. And when the Father came to demonstrate his love for us, who was he dealing with? He was dealing with us, the total wreckage of humanity, people whose lives are broken and shattered by sin. Left to our own vices and devices, we would be wreaking havoc on the world and on each other. The point is that God did not elect and predestine sinless saints or even the best that humanity has to offer to become part of his family. No, God elected and predestined sinners like us, perhaps better than us, perhaps worse than us, but all of us children of wrath by nature. Talk about a fixer-upper, right? Talk about a project that needs mending. He came to adopt us into his family and transform us into children of mercy by love. So what Paul is telling us is that this is how beautiful and powerful the gospel is. Is that when God established his purposes for his people in the world... He didn't look out and say, I've got to find the best of the best and the cream of the crop. No, he says, I've got to find the dregs of humanity. Those are the people I'm going to bring into my family. Those are the people that I'm going to work to reform. So he went for the most troubled and the most traumatized children of wrath that were out there. And we were numbered among them. And it is by this glorious grace of God that any kind of change has happened in our lives. This is the work of God in us. We were a hot and steamy mess when the Spirit came looking for us to bring us to Christ, to gather us into the church. But this is what Paul says. No matter how messy and broken our lives were, no matter how jacked up and crazy we might have been, God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is very consistent with what God spoke to sinners through the servant Moses in the book of Deuteronomy when he said to his people then, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Paul is simply echoing that, looking at it through the lens of Jesus and saying, see what God has done in Christ for you? Not because you were all that, but because you were none of that. And why did he love you? Well, he loves you because he loves you, not because you were so lovable. And that is the beauty of the gospel. The Father did not wait for you to clean up your act, 
to get it all together or to get sober or to fix your broken life or to heal from all of your wounds before he predestined you. Now, this is literally a case of he predestined you just as you are. Mess and all, warts and all, brokenness and all. He'll take every bit of it. Why? It's for the praise of his glorious grace. So that none of us can sit around and say, well, you know, God wanted me on his team because I've got skills that you don't have. I have abilities that you can't see. I have moral virtue tucked away deep inside of my soul that no one else could tap into but God. But here I am. He did his part. I'm doing my part. That is not how the gospel works. The gospel works like you're a child of wrath wreaking havoc on the world. And God says, I want to adopt that demon child into my family. And I'm going to change that child from the inside out. You see, most people resist or reject the doctrine of predestination because they think of it mechanically and clinically as if God only works from the outside in. That's where they get the puppet master thing and the robot thing. They don't understand that God the Father in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work from the inside out to give us new hearts, to give us new spirit, to change our nature to make us new creatures, to do something in us and for us that we could never do for ourselves. This is God's work. So the Father predestined us knowing full well who and what we were and what we had done, what we are doing, what we will do, also the things we've left undone. He knew how much trouble we were in and how much trouble we would cause. And he predestined us anyway, knowing that he could help us and help us get back to good, to get us back to his glory by his grace. He knew how broken and mean and scared and lost we were and how much it would cost to bring us into his family. And he did it anyway. He did it anyway. Why? Well, the answer is so simple. That we almost overlook it. It's one phrase found at the end of verse 4. In love. So you see the question is not why did God predestine to adopt some and not to adopt others. It's not even why did God predestine you and me and not someone else. The question is why did God predestine to save anyone? When no one was deserving. Why did the Father predestine us for all of these beautiful and wonderful things? At the heart of the mystery of predestination, there is only one true answer. And this is it. Love. As Tim Keller put it so beautifully, predestination teaches that God doesn't love us because we're lovely. God loves us with a love that makes us lovely. Why? Because God is lovely. And the Father predestined us in love because he loved us in the beloved.
It's almost too good to be true. But it's all true, every bit of it. As Thomas Aquinas put it, the only motive for God's predestinating will is to communicate the divine goodness to others and consequently to receive endless glory from those who receive his love. Isn't that what Paul said? All of this happens for the praise of God's glorious grace. Well, a few months ago, I was visiting with a minister from a local congregation here in Rockwall. We met to eat tacos and to discuss uh, various things regarding life and ministry and to talk about his movements, his traditions, view of baptism and things like that. And as I got up to leave his office, he said, hey, the next time we get together, let's talk about your denomination's view of predestination. And I could tell by the way he said it that he did not like our denomination's view of predestination, or at least the caricature of it. I told him I'd be happy to do it, but I also told him I can give you our, the heart of our view in about 30 seconds, and I'm going to give it to you now. If you don't hear anything else today, if you haven't heard anything else, hear this. Here's the truth of the mystery of predestination in a nutshell. God loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. God elected you in Christ because he wants you to be blessed in Christ sanctified in Christ, adopted into his family in Christ, and rewarded with endless riches in Christ. Predestination is all about God's ultimate purpose for your life, which is this, to connect you to his son, Jesus Christ, and to conform you to his image and likeness, all to the praise of his glorious grace. That is the beautiful mystery of the scariest word in all the Bible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.